Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. I'd like to start by acknowledging that I am recording on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. I also acknowledge and respect the continuation of cultural, spiritual and educational practice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and I extend that respect to any First Nations people we might have here with us today. Being on a board can be an incredibly valuable, interesting and exciting experience. Yet it can also be lonely, challenging and, let's face it, pretty hard. So here at Take On Board, I'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you navigate your way onto a board, onto your next board and to build your governance wisdom. Now, on with the show. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Deb Verhoeven about her recent research into gender equity and the ASX 200 boards. First, let me tell you about Deb. Deb is Canada 150 Research Chair in Gender and Cultural Informatics at the University of Alberta. Prior to this position, she was Associate Dean of Engagement at UTS. An agitator, commentator and critic, Deb is a long-standing advocate and leader in academic community engagement. In 2013, she was recognised as Australia's most innovative academic for her efforts in creating crowdfunding opportunities for academic researchers. Deb is a former board member and CEO of the Australian Film Institute, and she was the inaugural deputy chair of the National Film and Sound Archive Australia. She holds a current position on the board of Canary, Canada's peak digital research infrastructure provider. She served on the boards of the Victorian E-Research Strategic Initiative, Versi, and the Tasmanian Government's Digital Futures Advisory Council. Professor Verhoeven is a leading proponent of digital humanities. Her recent research has addressed how we can use the tools of big data, networks and understanding of digital infrastructure to shed light on power relationships and inequities. In her work as a digital humanities scholar, Professor Verhoeven is enlisting machine learning to redress the persistent domination of power elites. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Deb. Happy to be here, Helia. So good to have you. I should say, Deb, also, I always ask people to list their current and former boards. I'm not going to read out Deb's former boards here because it is such a long list. Suffice to say, we have, well, she's a professor, so she probably wouldn't say governance guru, but so I'm going to say governance guru in our midst. (laughs) So, but Deb, before we talk about your research and, you know, the Take On Board community knows that I'm always love a conversation about gender equity in the boardroom and how they come together. But before we do that, as always, I would love to dig a little bit deeper about you. 
So firstly, can you tell us uh, where were your mum and dad born and do you know where your ancestors are from? So my dad, and you probably get a bit of a guess about this from my surname, uh, was born in Holland and he arrived out in Australia in the in the 1950s as a 13-year-old, 11-year-old, something like that. Um, my mum comes from a long line of uh, settler Scots in Australia, so she can trace her lineage in Australia back to the 1850s, so 100 years earlier. Wow. And uh, it's quite an interesting story, actually. If you've got one minute, I'll I'll try mm. and do the short version. The original ancestor of hers who who came to Australia was a guy from the the mountains of Scotland, you know, the Highlands, and he fell in love with his cousin and said, you know, I want to marry you. I'm going to take you away. And she said, uh, I don't think so. I'm actually your cousin. So that's not happening. And he said, okay, well, I'll just wait till you have a daughter then. And he did. He waited until she had a daughter and the daughter was 16 and then he swept her off her feet and took her to Australia. Uh, and the story just goes on and on like that. It's just like one of those really kind of like odd lineage stories that you probably shouldn't um, ever tell unless you're at a party and you've had far too much to drink. But here we are. <laughs> no one's listening. It's okay. <laughs> Wow. I, oh, wow. So many questions about that that you probably don't know the answer to. So for you, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Do you have siblings? Tell us about that part. I always like to tell my foundation story. I was born in Melbourne, Nam, and I'm currently speaking from the, the unceded lands of the Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. But when I was born, uh, there was a bit of a, a baby glut going on in the particular hospital that my mum was in. Uh, so there were no beds for or cribs for children, so they put me in a drawer of a cupboard. Oh, so, <laughs> and the other part of my, my foundation story that I do like to mention is that the doctor that delivered me eventually committed suicide, which is a, a terrible story but seems to sort of have some bearing on the way I feel about that moment. So, Oh, my goodness. I ask these questions of lots of people and in every part of this so far I've got so many more questions about the cousin and the second cousin and the baby in the drawer and, oh, the the uh, obstetrician or the doctor. Oh, my goodness. So, it, again, only because I'm on the board of the Royal Women's Hospital, which hospital where you popped in a drawer, dare I ask? Springvale. So luckily not the one you're on the board of. And it was a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> I hasten to add. I don't know, next time we do a walk around of the hospital, should I be opening drawers just to make sure there's no overflow babies sitting in there? Hopefully that is not what happens anymore, but, you know, at least they popped you in a drawer. How many languages do you speak? Just the one, and that's always been a source of consternation. My mum would have liked my dad to have taught us Dutch. Mm -hmm. My dad was a, a great and classic uh, melting pot Australian. I think within a year of being in Australia, he was the top of his English class. Mm. So he felt there was no real need for us to to learn Dutch. He sort of saw his future and our future being in Australia and and for whatever reasons that was a, a monolingual kind of existence. Yeah. Oh, it's so frustrating, isn't it? I think I only speak English as well. Uh, my partner's... Parents are both Italian. They speak Italian at home. He doesn't speak Italian. My mother was, happened to be born in Italy, even though her father was Hungarian and her mother was Russian. So they had this great mix of different languages. She spoke Italian as a very young girl, but now only speaks English. We only speak English. Oh, it's such a shame. 
Um, it is really frustrating. I mean, I have lived in other countries where I've acquired some limited language skills during the time that I've lived there, and um, it does it does give you really interesting insights into different ways of thinking and mm. different ways of articulating your relations in the world, um, which I think is really really interesting. You know, whether how people treat, for example, past tense and present tense in the language can really affect how you feel about your history or your antecedents or your future and, and things like that. It's quite, quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think having at least one other language really gives you, like it's good exercise for the brain, but it just gives you a different frame through which to see through things, which could be incredibly useful. But it's not me, unfortunately, <laughs> or not us. Where do you feel your place is or where your home is? That's a really interesting question to ask me right now because I work in Canada but I live in currently in Nam in Melbourne and I feel that sense of the kind of pull of where my place is mm. and whether my place is my home is another really interesting question. So I think possibly the, the answer to this is I feel like I have many places and possibly also many homes but they're not necessarily the same thing. And as a feminist, I think this is also a very interesting question. I've spent most of my life as a feminist trying to resist being put in my place. And I think that that question for a feminist of my generation and my uh, privilege is about wanting a kind of mobility that you feel is being denied to you. So wanting to be able to move at will or at ease. and that's that is a position of privilege and it's also let me clarify that I feel that not being put in my place mm -hmm. is a privilege that having mobility is a privilege but that doesn't hold true for all cultures and so mm -hmm. for example for many Indigenous Australians having a connection to one place is in mm -hmm. fact privilege this is pointed out to me by a friend and a colleague Sandra Phillips who um, made this point to me one day when we were discussing where we felt at home and what our place was. And it hadn't occurred to me before that having yeah. a continuous relationship to place could also be a position of privilege and and have a potency that I didn't experience because my whole life was about wanting to be free to move and feel free in some way and unshackled. And I think the importance of being in Canada is in large part directly related to something that I experienced as a, a university student in Australia and having my research put in its place. Mm. And, and when that happened, I was denied scholarships to study overseas and so on. And I spent most of my life actually trying to have that opportunity, mm -hmm. that, that sense mm -hmm. of mobility and that sense of being able to connect more broadly or more globally um, through mm. my research. And so that, yeah, it's a very complicated question that you've asked. Mm. And I think it's a really good one. And I'm not sure I have a definitive answer for you. Well, I'm not sure there is a definitive answer when you're asking people about their place and home, but that is such an interesting reflection about kind of knowing your place and therefore not, I, I refuse to be put in, put in my place or whatever it may be. And that reflection about, yeah, our First Nations people or some First Nations people or even some non-First Nations people who might see it as a real privilege to be able to stay in that one place. You know, I even think... You know, my father's family moved a lot when they were young because they kept getting thrown out of their houses because they couldn't pay the rent. It would have been a real privilege for them to be in the one house, which is only one part of your place. So it's, yeah, that is such an interesting reflection about that tension. 
And it relates to boards, actually, when we think about it. So when you think about the tenure that people might have on boards, it's considered quite powerful to, to have continuous board positions or to have positions that last for some period of time. And what we find often is when new, new board members enter a network like the ASX 200, they find it very hard to establish themselves. And there's often a high attrition rate or turnover rate as a result. Yeah. There's a really interesting sense of how your question about place might also relate to questions about power or precarity. Thank you for doing the segue for me. I like it. So the research that you recently did, tell us about what the research is and, and what you found and let's explore that a little bit. I think your listeners will be really familiar with what we found because it's come up quite a few times in podcasts that you've done over the last mm. six months or so. And I, I really was interested. I had a, a listen while I was prepping for this episode to Melinda Ho's discussion with you, mm-hmm. where she talked a lot about how boards need to get beyond representation as their kind yeah. of basic sense of equity. And I think what we did with our research is we found the evidence base for that yeah. feeling that a lot of us have had, which is, it doesn't seem to matter as the numbers improve, it doesn't still feel equal or even close. So what's mm. going on there? What's happening? Why are we having that feeling? What's that intuition? Mm-hmm. Is there an evidence base for understanding what's actually happening on boards when we start increasing the numbers of equity-seeking groups into the board network? So we took the ASX 200 board network from 2015 And then we took another snapshot of it at the end of 2018. Mm -hmm. This is a really interesting period because this is the period of time when we went from a 20% representation of women on seats. So not unique women, just the number of seats. And we got to 30% by the end of 2018, more or less. And so this was heralded as a great success, the the 30% club, which is very influential Mm -hmm. in trying to to create the conditions for greater representation of women on boards. And they did a great, they did an excellent job. They did. They got to 30% of seats mm-hmm. being held by women at the end of 2018. So we thought, okay, this is going to be really interesting because we should, if we look at this, be able to see that women also don't just increase in number, but increase in influence at a yep. proportional rate. Yeah, That's what we're looking for. Because mm-hmm. if it's really going to be meaningful, if it's substantive change, as the numbers increase, so should the agency of women inside the networks. Mm-hmm. And we use this very, very new kind of analysis or reasonably new kind of analysis called social network analysis to try and pin that down. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to see that women increase their agency at the same time that we increase their numbers? And the answer is no. Mm-hmm. It's not possible to see that. So we have more women in the network but relatively speaking, the smaller number of men have greater power or greater agency. And we measured that in two ways. If you think about it, how would you think about understanding the kinds of relationships you can have in a board network? And there are, there's many ways you can do this using this, this type of science. We picked out two very simple ones. So the first one is a kind of influence we call degree influence. Degree mm-hmm. just simply means how many people are you directly connected to in your collaboration network? Yep. And we measured that by looking at all the people that you might sit with on a board. So the collaboration networks are formed from your boards, the board yep. you sit on, 
the people you sit with, they're your first degree of collaboration. Mm -hmm. If you sit on three boards, you would have a greater level of degree because you're sitting with more people. So degree measures your ability to influence a very local part of the network, the people you're directly in touch with. There's another way you can measure power as well, and that's called betweenness. And this is a really, really interesting one because betweenness measures the extent to which someone has to go through you to get to another part of the network. Mm. So it's measuring your systemic influence. How influential are you at the, at the broadest level of the system? So if we look at degree and we look at betweenness, we see very, very interesting distinctions in men's behaviour and women's behaviour. And what we find is that when you pour more women into the network in this period, we found their degree did increase. And that's in large part because, again, we have to make these distinctions very carefully, a small number of women sat on a large number of seats. Yes. Yep. So you can see already that's why their degree would be higher, Mm -hmm. relatively speaking, because you might have 10 women sitting on 20 boards. Yeah. hypothetically yep. speaking. Between us, women's power actually went down. So what that means is women are doing a lot of hard work. They're working yeah. very hard at a local level. They're sitting on lots of boards. They're reading lots of papers. They're talking to lots of people. They're making lots of decisions, but they don't have any systemic power. And in my head, this is how I've, I'm describing it. It might be completely wrong but in my head that degrees the number of doors I guess that are that are available to you and betweenness in my head is the opening of those doors does that kind of work as an analogy look it kind of does actually it's it's a really interesting way to think about it I I always try and explain it using social networks or social media because we're all sort of familiar with that so degree is like how many friends do you have in Facebook yeah but betweenness is how many times to get to another part of the world would I have to go through you? Okay, so is it like, you, you know, how LinkedIn has first degree, second degree, third degree, so on, those connections? In a way, yeah. So if I said to you, try and make a connection to a person that neither of us know personally, right? Yep. How would you do that in an abstract way? How would you find that person using only LinkedIn? So you might tap someone on the shoulder and go, do you know this person? And they might go, well, I don't know them directly, but I do know that so-and-so knows them and so on. And then then we would work out that the quickest way to get to person X is through a common denominator. That common denominator, that person who is the common denominator, has a lot of influence. They can can close access to another part of the network or open it. They sort of have this tacit power Mm -hmm. to put people together or make connections across a broad network. Quite a few men in the um, ASX 200 network who have what we would consider relatively low degree, so they're not doing much work, but very high levels of influence. Right. So sort of think of them as the eminence grease of, you know, the network. They're the, they're the old boys. Yeah. You know, yeah. The guys who know who you need to know. Right. So... So how do we then influence that? Like if that's if that's the power base, essentially, the old school tie, whatever it may be, women are getting to the boardroom, so they're getting the connections, but they're not getting the, the betweenness. How do we get that? 
That's a really good question because it's it's all about relationships. It's it's about one of the problems with the way we currently count equality on boards is we use a very simple measure, which is yeah. just statistics, numbers. numbers. Yeah. And the numbers aren't telling us the full story. Head counts don't tell us the full story. And mm-hmm. yet we pursue them as if they are the end story. So what we're saying is that we still need more more women. That's not there's absolutely not an argument against the idea that we need more women. I mean, aside from anything, 30% is not equality. It's like, hooray, 30%, but still, it's far from equality. It it was 100% for 100 years of men, so we should just have another 100 years where it's 100% women. So, you know, that would be equality. But put that statistical anomaly aside or ambition aside, what we need to do is start to think about which boards women end up on, how many women end up being chairs of boards. And during this during this period, so many lost opportunities for women to to have more influence and more responsibility. Between the 2015 network and the 2018 network, the number of uh, women chairs actually went down. There's definitely something missing there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the types of boards women sit on, I think, is also part of the issue. So there's there's any number of explanations for this. But until we start looking for this kind of evidence... We're not in any position to make change. Yeah. At the moment, all we're doing is head counts. Yeah, and saying, yay, 30% of boards have women, yay, which is, I guess, yay compared to 20%, but it's not the full story. And as you say, it's the same women being recycled through a lot of those boards, which are also the, you know, if we look at other diversity lens they are the privileged white women predominantly also that are being recycled through rather than women of colour, women with a disability, all of the other intersections of, of diversity that also need to be looked at. That's right. And that's why we always talk about equality, diversity and inclusion. And that's, that's I guess, what I'm, what I'm asking for here is we're only doing the statistical analysis. We're not mm. doing the analysis of whether inclusion in particular mm. and diversity are in fact also in play here. Um, so I think, you know, what we're finding, therefore, is, you know, there's that women are not taking up substantive power in the network or yeah. having substantive agency. There's no real discernible trickle-down effect occurring so that the carrot was always if we get to 30%, it will have benefits for CEO appointments, it will have <clears throat> further benefits down the line. We're not seeing that. And we have an inflated sense of presence because yeah. we're calculating board seats rather than unique board yeah. members. I call this fig leaf feminism, by the way. I think this is where you use statistics to kind of mask business as usual. So it's sort of like, rah, rah, we're doing the right thing, there's more women, but actually what's going on under the fig leaf is what you would expect. So if we were doing a monitoring and evaluation plan for diversity and equity on boards, what should we be measuring? Looking at just the numbers and the data is not going to tell the story. What should we be looking at? So my belief is that male domination in networks is the result of unequal social relationships and we need to be measuring social relationships, not just statistics. Statistics are really fabulous at telling us whether we've progressed from a bench, a statistical benchmark to a new statistical benchmark. And that is quite useful. Again, not saying we shouldn't do it, but if that's all we're doing, then that's all we know. We've got a a description, but we haven't got an explanation. 
and we haven't mm. understood how to really create substantive change. So what we need to do is, I believe, a lot more of this kind of analysis, this sort of social network analysis where we're actually measuring behaviours and relationships, and that will tell us, again, whether we've progressed from certain benchmarks in previous formations of the network to new formations of the network. And and might also give us some insights into, you know, what we need to do next as well rather than just inverted commas pop women on boards, which is, as I say, it's not a bad thing, like that's good, but not just popping them on boards, but how can we increase that social connectedness? How can we share that equally? There's a great branch of this science which is all about called what-if modelling. So what if we just took out all the guys who have certain characteristics or measures? What if we just took them out? So, for example, um, I did this analysis on the film industry networks, collaboration networks, and we discovered a number of really shocking statistics, like 75% of male producers in the Australian film industry had only ever worked with one woman in their entire career. Um, in their creative team, things like that, right? The lovely thing about this analysis is it scales. So you can see the very granular and the very generic or systemic. And we could see and name the men who had never worked with women ever. And then we thought, well, what do we do with that information, right? Who uses that information to create better worlds? And the answer is the police and counterterrorism agencies use this kind of analysis to take out the mafia or to take out terror cells. And it's called criminal network analysis. And so I did a criminal network analysis of the Australian film industry. And we discovered that we could identify these guys. And, you know, technically you could, and I'm just going to use this term metaphorically, you could take them out of the network. Like you could just stop funding them or you could stop giving them yeah. things to do, right? So then what we did is we did what-if analysis. We thought, let's see what, what would happen to the networks if we hypothetically did that. Like, So we had a map of all the relationships in the film industry and then we had these guys. We knew their names. We knew who they were. And so we just took them out of the network and we did that in different ways. We took them out one at a time. We took them out all at the same time. You, you name it, we tried all different ways to take them out. How many men do you have to take out of a network before you see the network change? when you do this hypothetical modelling? And the answer is almost all of them because mm. patriarchy, if I want to use a shorthand phrase for what we're describing here, male-dominated networks mm. uh, have a particular quality which in data science is called modularity. And modularity means when you take one of them out, they just sort of fold in behind. And totally. it's, so, and, and you think about this, it makes a lot of sense. You, know, you take Harvey Weinstein out of the Hollywood film industry you throw him off the side of SS patriarchy, what happens? The ship just go, goes faster. It's got less ballast. You know, it's kind yeah. of, it's, yeah. so that wasn't the solution. What was mm. the solution? And again, this is very preliminary analysis and please don't um, think it applies in all circumstances because my patriarchy in the film industry is not necessarily the same as the patriarchy in a board industry. And that's another thing to remember. But what worked in the film industry was to convince men who hold power or influence in the film industry to share that power with women. Right. Which is really, really interesting because, again, it's not always practical. So you wouldn't necessarily send women to work with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. That would not necessarily be a good idea. So it works nicely in theory. 
how you make that a practical aspiration is a different question again. And whether they're even up for it, whether Joe Bloggs, who's the centre of the social connectedness, is up for power sharing with anyone, let alone a bunch of women. That's right. I'm not talking about mentoring or, you know, vague associations. This is about actually giving up your power or giving up your influence or sharing it in a meaningful way. That is an aspiration to have. The, you know, lifelong feminist in me says it's, as you say, highly unlikely that men are going to just give it up and that we are going to have to compel them through regulatory mechanisms of some kind. But just focusing on the statistical numbers of headcounts isn't going to convince them either. And they they don't need to because at the moment they're not losing power. They're letting women into the network but they're keeping power. What I'm hearing here is quotas work to some extent but we definitely need more than that. It's convincing those that are at the centre of those social power networks to share that but share it in a true meaningful way. Have you seen instances of where that's happened, where there has been that true sharing, a sharing of power or giving over of power even? No, is the short answer to that. Um, the the long, slightly longer answer is that the Swedish film industry had some success at improving the position of women, but uh, that was done, and this is a classic, this phrase will be very familiar to anyone listening to, to this podcast, the fish rots from the head. So mm-hmm. what happened in the Swedish film industry is that the head of the the film industry was a feminist and she just rolled the the feminist framework of decision-making right down from the top through the mm-hmm. organisation at every level. Mm-hmm. And it just became expected at every level. Right. She's no longer the head of the institute in Sweden, so it'll be very interesting to see if we can map any mm-hmm. reversion after she's left. Interesting. Oh, my brain is both melting and kind of just popping in all sorts of interesting ways there, Deb. I'm imagining this is going to be on your research agenda for a while, so you're going to have to come back and tell us what what else is discovered in this because it's just made it's made the problem, inverted commas, so much more complex. That's good to understand, but oh. Well, I have to say, Helia, you know, the thing is male domination or patriarchy has existed for a very, very long time. If it was a simple thing to overthrow it, we would have done it a long time ago. So (laughs) it's not ever going to be simple. And part of the problem is I think we're all searching for a one-size-fits-all solution. Wouldn't it be great if it was quotas? Let's just do quotas because that that applies everywhere into lots of different environments and and we can do it. We can see the numbers and it's nice and easy and clear. I'm sorry to be the harbinger of bad news, you know, but I just don't think it's as simple as that. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to make it more complicated than it is either because I don't mm. want us to give up hope. But what I do think we need to do as feminists is start to embrace some of these new tools that we have at our disposal. I'm an accidental statistician or data analyst. I'm, I was terrible at maths at school. And I've taken this on as part of my arsenal because I believe that often data is used against us. And if yeah. we don't start to, to work with people who understand these kinds of ways of seeing the world and making mm. it accountable, we will miss out. Oh, Deb, what an amazing conversation. I really want the answer to this question too. What are the key things you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? Don't let the numbers become an end in themselves. Yeah. 
That's it. Yep, great. And is there some resources you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Yeah, look, in the show notes, I'll I'll put the public version of this research, but I'll also put the hardcore nerd version because it's, it's worth having a look at and it does have all the numbers in it and, you know, you can download the statistics and data if you want to and, and look at it yourselves if you, if you mm-hmm. feel like that's something you want to do. So we've made all the, the data available and we'd really love feedback from, from anyone listening to this that, that feels mm-hmm. they have some insights that they can lend. You know, we have a Take On Board book club, which, as the name would suggest, often looks at books. I wonder whether we need to have a Take On Board book club around the research so that we can all data nerd out together on it. I'll file that away. I might make that happen. (laughs) Oh, Deb, thank you so much. Amazing pearls of wisdom there. So thank you so much for sharing with the Take On Board community today. Totally my pleasure. Thank you. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd really love it if you could also do some of the other podcast things. Share with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And, well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.